It's at go underscore oat, your friend from the internet. Um, and this is the long-awaited podcast with at kev underscore jg, uh, the go oat, and the big dog show. Um, we don't know really anything about podcasting. What we've done is just to have a rather lengthy phone conversation that we recorded and we're releasing to all of you. So here we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, the protests sweeping the country, um, some talk about rising fascism in the United States and um, the possibility of true uh, Christian political organization uh, in this country. So um, again, not podcasters, not really edited, but I hope you enjoy. So we were talking about... um this opposition between order and justice, right? Um, I guess, you know, my feeling is that it's just a, this idea that the church requires a political order in order to engage with and, and sort of infiltrate itself into society is, is it's just a very limited point, And that's why I find its deployment against the protesters a little bit ridiculous because all of the protesters are committed to the American regime. Well, let's say 95 to 99% of the protesters anyway are committed to the American regime and are pushing only for reform within the context of the American regime. There's absolutely no challenge to it. So I just find it a very strange point. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's also a point for which it is hard to find absolute precedent in the Christian tradition, I think. Right, you have the 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 argument that uh, obedience, even to a secular, hostile, oppressive authority, is best because that creates some kinds of condition in terms of which the church can work. Uh, it, I think it's only only historically, only psychologically tenable if you believe that the state is on the cusp of conversion. Right, if you think that there's a there's a Constantine waiting in the wings, uh, whom if you just influence him a little bit and ensure that things go well go well uh, for him uh, with the church as an ally, that he'll bend the knee. Uh, I I don't know how else it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so I would I would affirm a very limited theoretical point that in order for political life as such to exist, it, it, there's implied some kind of political authority that is care for the common good of that political society, right? And of I think when they, when they deploy this trope or when certain people on the internet deploy this trope, they're opposing this good of order to a pure state of anarchy, which, again, I don't think anybody is really, you know, agitating for. Again, the, the protests are a movement for reform of the American state. On the other hand, I do, uh, you know, what I see them doing is taking that very limited theoretical point and, you know, effectively extending that to liberalism as such, that if liberalism doesn't exist, then there will be this collapse into nothingness, right? Which, to your point, isn't, you know, I, I can't think of truly anarchistic conditions except in outright civil wars, Right. But even in those scenarios, there are usually contending political authorities. Right. There are there typically is not a total lawlessness, a total anarchy. So so I, I, I genuinely just don't follow. Well, and I think they would contest vigorously uh, your claim that they believe uh, we need to you know throw our lot in with the liberal order. But that's effectively what they're doing. Right. I mean, they're, they're going to the mats. So what they're saying is that. Uh, <laughs> No, I think I mean, what, that, what, they're, I, what they're saying what they're saying is that a challenge to liberalism uh, can only possibly come from above, right? That that a a a 
a popular movement that is calling, at least in some in some corners, for the abolition or significant curtailment of the major point at which the state interacts with the people, namely the police, right? Uh, this popular movement, they could totally deny that it is in any way a threat to the liberal order. Uh, well, th- yeah, I mean, th- that's a wholly separate conversation, right? And, and that, that really has to do with, you know, the nature of the liberal order and whether or not white supremacy is part of it, et cetera, right? Not even, um, white, not even white supremacy, right? I mean, one, one thing that's amazed me so much about these, uh, uh, the, the general protests and, and, and uh, other events that we've seen in the, past few, in the past few weeks, or at least in the past few days, is that there's nothing, uh, the slogan Black Lives Matter is very important, but the, the crowds and their anger are not primarily or exclusively black, right? Like, like everyone, everyone is upset. That's true, but I do think that what people are, and, and you know, I, I don't, I, I won't speak for every protest everywhere. I do think that the primary thing that people are upset about is continued police brutality, is the murder of Mr. George Floyd. Um, you know, I think when you when you hear the slogans they're typically no justice no peace which is a you know that's that's a very general sentiment but applies specifically to the black lives matter movement you'll hear no more racist ass police right which no god-fearing christian could really you know take issue with um i do think that the now now that's not to say that that you know i saw a number of signs in washington dc in a photo today where they were all about the bunker baby Donald Trump. And I do think that there's a significant element of, you know, people going out who would otherwise go to the March for Science or the Women's March or, sure, or sure. just general, um, you know, anti-Trump sentiment. But I do think I do. I do want to say that the and I think this is a challenge to both um, the people who want to see this as some kind of beginning of a general uprising and or revolutionary challenge to the liberal order challenge to those people and a challenge to people who see it um you know as purely this um you know feature of the democratic party at the end of the day that that really the the black lives matter movement has been the focus and i think that's been what's what's really united the people who are in the streets regardless of what other affiliations they might have so i do think i do think fundamentally that's what the protests are about even if there are these other other sentiments leaking in. I mean, I almost fe- it almost feels to me like the protests have become about themselves, right? The the uh, the question is not whether the police are allowed to be racist because no one no one actually affirms that, right? Even even at the beginning of this, the president himself was saying he was denouncing the activities of the Minneapolis police and saying that justice for George Floyd is an important priority of his. Uh, li- no one openly, although I'm sure many people secretly, uh, no one openly is prepared to say that, you know, it is good that the police are able to kill black people or able to kill anyone uh, without impunity or without scrutiny. But now that you've had all these now that you've had all these protests in which the police, you know, sort of offended that their uh, that their reign has been challenged, uh, have come out in tremendous force with great uh, unnecessary violence against uh, against you know peaceful or sometimes even merely merely uh, uh, inert protesters uh, that has acquired a kind of momentum on its own 
Right. Well, it's because, you know, they're demonstrating the behaviors that the protesters are ultimately there to protest against, right? Protesters are there to protest against police brutality. The police engage them with brutality. And so there's a sort of a positive feedback cycle. One of the things that I've been surprised by is that the, you know, party of order hasn't actually gotten enough violence done to dissuade people from going out. If they had killed 20 people in New York City, you know, five days ago, I can't imagine there would have been large crowds in D.C. today. Maybe there would have been, but, you know, I certainly don't think, you know, I, there would have been a really reason, a significant chance that they could have nipped these protests in the bud. What they've done is through incompetence to just fuel them further, which I've actually been surprised by. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that, right? I, I, I don't think anyone has the stomach, not even the police, for an actual uh, – for, for what our what our Schmidtian friends dream of, right? An actual repoliticization uh, of the world, right? Through through blood, effectively. Right? I don't think anyone has the appetite for that. Uh, That's out of a few keyboard warriors, but you know, no, the keyboard have, the keyboard warriors do. But at the end of the yeah. day, I think the cops don't. The cops want to be unchallenged. They hate no, that's, it, that, right? They don't it, actually. They don't actually. They don't actually believe that they their authority deserves to be asserted in rivers of blood. Well, and, and, I, and I, in fairness to the keyboard warriors, if you gave them a gun and put them on the front lines, I don't think they'd have the stomach for it either, right? This is one of the fundamental lessons of anybody that does military service. Whatever you want to say about the, the, the dignity of people in the military, you know, it's a, it's a weighty thing, right, to, to have to actually take somebody's life in general. So um, if you have experience with that, you tend to have a different perspective on what that question looks like. Oh, it's a, it's a magnificent phenomenon we have in which a bunch of, a bunch of lawyers and academics uh, – uh, you know, generally, generally not very, not very physically impressive people are talking about how important it is that the fight be brought to the streets, send in the troops, uh, thinking about tanks, talking openly about their desire to shoot the protesters, uh, and then on on the other side we have military men, both you know people of our acquaintance, and also many retired military people in the uh, very publicly in the press, letting letting it be known that they think. The approach of the police is a catastrophe and is not only immoral but ineffective. And I'm sure part of that is jealousy because I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, for some of the people that served in our armed forces, they would have really enjoyed rules of engagement such that the police enjoy in our streets, right, when fighting terror overseas. I don't know. I'm perhaps I'm, I, I may believe in uh, I may believe in in military virtue a bit more than you do. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think they have a. And this gets at the biggest difference, I think, between the military and, and, and the police, which is that the poli- the military view their job as protecting Americans. I think they do, uh, whether that's whether that is channeled in directions that, that end up go, uh, creating uh, creating bad outcomes. I do think they genuinely believe that the police do not. Right. Right. Police, exactly. Police who are rolling into a neighborhood, adorning themselves with the Punisher logo. Right. Which which, frankly, you see, even in New York, uh, not just in uh not not just in other places. Maybe I shouldn't say even in New York. In NYPD, yeah, I, I actually uh, adorning themselves with, adorning themselves with the Punisher logo, uh, th- talking about having endless. I mean, it, it, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of peaks uh, recently into some of like the police Facebook groups. I've been I've been actually pretty interested in that stuff for a long time. There is absolutely a mentality of war, right? That the it is the yeah. it is the police against it is the police against all. Uh, you don't see that even when the military, like we know, we know people who've been in Iraq and Afghanistan. Many of them have a, uh, let's say, a distinctly negative uh, uh, opinion of the Iraqi and Afghan people, 
but none of them ever spoke as if like everyone over there was an enemy. Even bracketing that question, I think I think your first insight is the most important one. That that if you're in the military, the entire um, you know pedagogy of being in the United States military service is that you're giving your life for America and for American citizens, and that means that when you come home, you know you were prepared to die for everyone over here, right? Black, white, poor, rich, whatever. And so that means that you have a very different perspective than, than you know, yeah. the police. That, that It's not even clear to me that they know who they are an agent of. They just know that they are at war with America. In other words, it's not clear who, to me anyway, what they imagine their commander is or what their ruling authority is. It's simply that it's the cops against everyone, which is which is very strange. In a way, it would almost be more uh, understandable if they deliberately understood themselves to be um, security for big capitalists or security for the white race or something like that. The fact that they are a, a sort of autonomous sect that's really simply beholden to themselves but with no intelligible higher principle is really strange. Well, ideology wouldn't work as ideology if it were fully articulated, right? I mean, it, it, the same way, the same way that the the uh, when the when the when the party of order call for greater acts of violence to restore, you know, to restore order, it is it is clear that there are there are acts of blood that they consider to be orderly and acts of blood that they consider to be disorderly, and except in some of the more you know almost satanically uh, cynical of them. They don't articulate to themselves why one of these things is, is good and one of these things is bad. Right? And so, fundamentally, I don't understand that unless we're talking about predictability, because I have a very sort of naive uh, view of order and justice residing in participation with the government of God, right, and the, the kingship of Jesus Christ, right? That's what I imagine. And so it doesn't really matter to me if there's an irregular outbreak of protests or if there's a regular 3,000 a day civilian murder through abortion, right? Those are equally scenarios of lawlessness, injustice, and disorder. It's not clear to me why, you know, putting down protests is a real reassertion of order if what's behind that is the perpetuation of this ongoing, you know, regular set of killings. Well, and, and that's a point I think that you make very rightly, which is where, uh, and this is where there, I think some, some disagreement, right? Like, is there, is there a, um, do we have any interest in defending, in defending the status quo? Right. I know you, you're, you're sort of inclined to say no, right? This is an, this is an abortionist piece. It is not worth, it is not worth, it is not worth preserving, right? And, and you almost uh, I, I won't. I won't put words in your mouth, but uh, that's no. It's that not just abortionist. Thing. I mean, there's all kinds of things, sure, right? That, sure. that, that there's there's equal amounts. I mean, far greater amounts of of of, uh, of robbery, right? As opposed to the looting. You know, all of these sins are not are not new and not unique to the protesters, right? So it, that's what's not clear to me is whether there's a good of predictability, right? Because it's clear that neither side is really offering in order that we would understand as a, as a significant piece or, or a real order. But, but I, I don't really affirm that there is a good of, you know, that our violence be predictable in a way that makes it harder to, harder to combat. Well, no, I think there is, I think there is actually a, a good in things being predictable. The, the saying about the devil, you know, is not a, is not a totally, totally off base one, right? Because you can, you can respond to and avoid 
evils that you evils that you know are coming. There's also just the psychological component that you get, that you get used to them. But it is it is. Uh, I mean, I uh, there's no point in not naming names, right? I can't help but think of the the absolutely ridiculous uh, treatment that uh, Saurabh gave his experience in New York during the riots. Right? A few windows in his neighborhood was broken, and Saurabh, who has called for the bombing of more or less uh, every Muslim country in the in the in the world at some point, the headline he puts on this is "Worse than War." A few broken windows in Midtown Manhattan. Would you believe it if I told you that I didn't read that? It's worth reading. It's worth reading because you realize how, how little the damage is and how little danger he's in. Uh, a a a, uh, a person who whom he identifies as a, a criminal rioter does walk outside the doors of his building. But damage. That's it. Yeah, yeah. They, they broke some other windows in the neighborhood. Certainly, it was a chaotic situation. It was not a situation that anyone could welcome. But worse, worse than war, right? So once. That might fit into your sort of predictability thesis that once uh, once certain types of people and certain neighborhoods and and certain uh, classes of property are no longer secure, suddenly, you know, order is what we need and we can worry about the justice of their claims later. So that's actually that's actually we're dwelling on because I think what's interesting about what you just said is that. That is the sense in which the protests are genuinely antagonistic to the ruling order in the sense that the ruling order is ordered to um, the benefit of of a few wealthy people um, who are generally white, who generally live in these big cities, right? Um, Insofar as the protests do not respect things like the right to private property, do not respect things like um, the quiet and serenity of these wealthy enclaves, then they really do, in a sense, strike at the heart of our order because it, they do target, um, you know, fundamentally what the order is ordered to, right? The 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 benefit of those individuals. Now, I, I don't think there's any real sense in which um, that authority is shaken, and you know, insofar as we can distinguish the injustice that 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 those ruling authorities perpetuate from their raw authority, right, if that makes sense, their their ability to rule versus what they do with their rule. Um, it's clear that the, that the protests are injuring what they're doing with their rule rather than the rule itself. So again, I don't think there's anything truly revolutionary in our moment that we're seeing, at least right now. I mean, it's very early. We've been doing this a week, I think. Um, so I, I truly revolutionary, no, right? And, and I mean, some of the and you can see this in some of what I consider the, the, the fatuous criticisms of this movement from from the left, where people will say, "Well, yeah, this is you know this is just a, a, a this is just a movement orchestrated by big business for their own interests. This is this is not truly progressive. There's no there's no focus on on the class dynamics that run through all this, and all of that is true to an extent. Nevertheless, to have such attention thrown on what is you know the the, the genuine evil of police brutality." is no doubt good, right? I, I, I see no way in which this ends without cops being subject to more scrutiny. Right, and it does seem that the cops are the most important and uh, most universally present instruments of the unjust rule that we experience, right? And, and, I, and I do think that if you're talking about a good entry point to if your interest were arguendo, I'm not saying this is me, I'm saying if your interest happened to be in a more general 
um, reordering of our society, beginning with the cops is not a bad place because it's the cops that enforce, broadly speaking, in people's day-to-day lives, all of these injustices that they experience day over day. Well, you, you know, I've written, I, I've said for a long time that uh, what we need is someone to write the Constitution of the Americas in the in the Aristotelian sense that it's a descriptive document of how we're ruled. Because uh, I think we get, we get, not, not, we, not, maybe not, not you and I, I mean, we who, we, we the wise can look down on the rest of the discourse from our, from our, uh, our ivory tower. Right. But, uh, people talk about our constitution and they, they have endless debates about what is the, you know, should we be originalists or not? What is the authority of the courts? What is the authority of the president versus the legislature? Where does sovereignty reside within the American system? And totally ignores, uh, those structures by which we're, by which we're actually ruled. Uh, right. And even even the people who talk most about the administrative state usually tend to focus on how, uh, you know, how rules are set for this or that industry or that sort of thing, not on the the actual uh, uh, point of engagement of the administrative state, which in most cases is is the truncheon. Right. Right. And, and that's a, a huge part of how we're ruled, a huge part of how individual persons interact with our political order. That has just come under tremendous pressure, and and uh, in talks talking about legitimacy is uh, talk, talking about legitimacy can be very silly if it turns into sort of a, a, a liberal game of, of procedures, right? Checking the box, and if you you if you score seventy five percent or more on some kind of criterion, you count as a legitimate authority. But there is definitely a sense in which the police have lost legitimacy. In which they are not they are not viewed as as justly exercising authority, and they know that. That's why they're so angry about the protests. No, I think that's right, and and, and I'm I'm surprised the degree to which that sentiment seems to be broadly shared among regular citizens. I mean, I think I saw a poll that that the fraction of American citizens that didn't trust the police had doubled in the last seven days or something like that. It's up to like 36% or something like that of Americans now suddenly don't trust the police. We've seen this happen in a lot of our institutions. We saw it happen in the church, unfortunately, where, um, you know, at some, at some point, you know, all of these injustices get um, sort of exposed and people realize that the mental image that they had of this institution isn't quite what the reality is. I think it's important. One of the reasons that I think Catholics are a little bit reluctant to, um, you know, be more forthright about the police in America is that, you know, they see that relationship with what happened with the church and they, you know, they don't want this general loss of, you know, trust in public institutions to strike back at the church once again, right? That we, we've had... A, a somewhat analogous situation where you know it's it, all of that evil was perpetuated by a few bad apples, but those bad apples were in general uh, supported by all of the good apples, right? And there's a degree to which there's a there's a broad amount of complicity with that wrongdoing that sort of everybody shares. Um, and so and so I, I do think it's important to recognize that you know the police are not a divinely ordained institution uh that it's okay for um you know there to be broad social antagonism toward the police where they're evil and where they're doing injustice right because that's they're they're fundamentally not um part of of the church and of the salvation of souls at the end of the day 
I mean, but I, I, I'm sympathetic to that argument. Uh, in fact, I was having a conversation along these lines with a, with a seminarian just this morning. Uh, okay. Both of us, both of us know a lot of priests, right? And 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 have for a long time. I'd say we we you know have priests not that we're not just familiar with as figures in the community, but that we can have conversations with. I have never. I have never had a conversation with a priest, whether I knew him well or poorly, who has said, actually, sexual abuse in the church isn't that big of a deal. This is just the lying fake news media trying to drag the church down. Now, no, and neither have I. Neither no, no. Have and, I. and no doubt many priests are aware that there is hatred at them that comes from the media and that if there weren't these true causes, the charges to bring against the church, certain people would find false ones. But none, none try to evade the gravity of the charge. Right, right, and we we all know that there are priests who uh, do not trust their bishops, do not encourage other people to trust their bishops to solve the problems of the church. Uh, there's no one ever sees a cop say, you know, I recognize that my institution has been tainted by the misbehavior of my brothers. No one ever sees a cop say that. Right. They say they, no, they, they will. They will make some some minor gestures occasionally when the wrongdoing was done in a different police department. It's a few bad apples, few bad apples, right? Uh, the, the the one thing that the one thing the the recent news in in Louisville that and it is very like what used to happen in the church, but secretly. The difference is the police can do it publicly. So what happened? You know what happened in Louisville? They, there is the there is the the barbecue vendor who was shot in like the first uh, few minutes of the enforcement of a curfew. Totally unclear what happens. All the police uh, involved in the shooting didn't have their body cameras on. And by union rules, none of them can be fired. That's really good. Without The, the chief of police was fired because he's, he's, in a, he's in sort of a civil position where the mayor can, can sack him. But he can't actually get rid of the murderers. I mean, maybe not all of them are murderers, but at least someone, <laughs> at least one of them is. Uh, yeah, we have no, we have no reason to believe that they're not all murderers. We have no evidence to, to disprove that. And we have, no, and because there's no evidence to prove it, since they, you know, turned off or discarded their body cams, according to union rules, they must keep their jobs. And and that's the sort of thing where you know the church. So you can have, I mean, you can have Cardinal McCarrick, you know, having his, his turning his turning some rectories in in the archdiocese of Newark into bordellos. And moving people secretly around them, but that all happened in secret. I mean, hell, some of this stuff was happening in my parish when I was a, a boy, and I had no idea. Truly, had no idea. Uh, this but stuff- it is a good it is a good analogy because you know when you think about the way that they get suspended and then they just sit at home for you know a few weeks and then things cool down and they're reinstated with back pay and returned to the force. I mean, that's exactly what the church was doing. Well, I mean, you know, more or less in secret, um, you know, back then. Yeah, although I I think the I think a good priest had it easier than a good cop. I think that's definitely true. Because a good priest um, could still be a could still be a, a pastor and a shepherd, even if he's part of an institution that we can all admit is is corrupted. If a good if a good cop tries to defend anyone from a bad cop, he's done. Uh, he's 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 absolutely done. Uh, there's a there's a great story in New York of, uh, and we only know this story because you got everything on tape. Uh, a New York City cop called Adrian Schoolcraft, who was actually, uh, who who became aware of uh, various untoward going ons in the, in the in the department, and legally or not, uh, filmed a lot of conversations that had had evidence of them. Uh, it, it this was this was like a decade ago, uh, and the court cases related to this have gone on forever. At a point, he was actually uh, psychiatrically committed because they got an NYPD uh, psychologist to say that he was only 
expressing these criticisms because of paranoid delusions he was having. Uh, they didn't realize he'd got all these things on tape. And so, That's cool. And so, the, I mean, I'm, it's it's pretty amazing. It's pretty cinematic. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure you know uh, some film studio that doesn't need to film in New York in the near future will have the eventually make a movie about it because it's pretty dramatic. Uh, but the the uh, I mean, it's just it's a shocking abuse of trust that runs all the way to the top, which I think is now. And you've made a good point uh, that some of this has to do with just uh, with technological change. Things yeah. can't things can't be hidden that could be hidden. Right. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's it's just really surprising. I I am, I thought I had a fairly negative view of the police. You know, two weeks ago, the the torrent of videos that we've seen come out on the internet um, of you know excess force, brutality, um, threatening people's lives, callous indifference over and over again. Um, it's just, it's just shocking. It's like I I think of Abu Ghraib, and when Abu Ghraib happened, you could imagine that. Because not the entire torture program wasn't revealed all at once, right? It was this one uh, particular site with a couple of principal instigators, and everybody could imagine that this was aberrant, right? That this wasn't what it was like for everyone. It's increasingly impossible. It's every police department. It's like that happening over and over again every single day. And I'm really floored by, you know, the evidence that's coming out and the reaction that people are having to it because... Um, you know, I just thought, I, I honestly thought that when this started, it was going to go away. It was going to go away quickly, and nothing would change. Yeah, and I and and I didn't think it was going to go away quickly in the sense of, you know, the police decisively, uh, in in the president's words, dominate the protests and 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 end, dominate the battle space and end what's going on. But just that things would things would dissipate. But the uh, and and to be fair, you say it's no. There's no police departments that are exceptional here. There are many places in which protests have been policed and uh, and yet unmolested, right? Where the we I mean, we've all we've all seen the scenes where a cop will will you know kneel with the protesters for the cameras and then start attacking them as soon as the as soon as the the press have got their pictures. That that's that's a dynamic. But there are many places in which the protests have been almost entirely peaceable, right? Like no, that's definitely true. New Orleans is not a happy city. Right, and New Orleans is not a city whose people love their cops, as far as I can tell. Uh, certainly, there's plenty of history to suggest otherwise. There, the protests have tended not to end in bloodshed, right? And so, there's, there there are things that the cops can do well. I just think in so many places they are used to being unchallenged. That's what's apparent if you actually go to one of these things. I'm not saying that I have, but if you did, uh, you know, the degree to which the police control of the protesters is effectively just bullying, and once you recognize that, it's really not that big of a deal. Obviously, there's a there's a degree to which you take your life into your own hands when you go to one of those things. Um, again, not saying that I have, but it's clear that you accept some level of um, potential physical discomfort, some potential injury, uh, maybe even death if you do. But I mean, again, the psychologically, the only <laughs> it's ridiculous. Right. They just pop off a couple pepper balls. People scatter. People come back. It's really there's no substance to it. It's just it's just, you know, it's it's brandishing the sword. Sure. No, I haven't. I haven't been to any 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 protests, but I uh, uh, honestly, I I thought of going to some here. But then I realized you uh, uh, a a big white guy from out of town who knows nobody is going to be understood by everyone as a cop. And so. (laughs) Uh, that's 
true. But the uh, but no, there's. But it seems it seems to be there seems to like there's a, there's a wonderful anecdote I saw from this morning where a a a, a black surfers group which apparently exists in New York City uh, organized a uh, organized a, I forget what the name it was it was uh, they just paddled out into the into the harbor together and this was supposed to be just like a an event the NYPD uh, sent boats to <laughs> to track them around. Were they even protesting, or were they just? So it was an event that was that was positioned as a as a protest. But there, okay, know, this okay. is a bunch of a bunch of guys on. I made mean, perhaps women too. I couldn't see in the pictures, but uh, a bunch of guys on surfboards in in the middle of Salt Harbor, right? Like, what are they what are they going to do? Uh, you know, loot New York, vandalize Harbor, a right? shipwreck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's <laughs> there is no there is no possible threat. Uh, and, uh-huh. and yet the police, because this event was sort of symbolically a challenge to their authority, felt the need to come out in force. And I think particularly in New York, I think that's what we've seen. Back to your I wanted to return to your idea of this, uh, this silly idea of the Constitution of the Americas. One of the things that I find most interesting about, um, you know, what we're learning about the police is that there's really no political oversight for them whatsoever. There's no recourse really on they they do whatever they decide they're going to do and there's very little in most cases that public authorities have to say about it well i mean the brilliant thing one of the brilliant things about american history is that our military is obedient right yeah i mean how many how many countries of of our size and might have ever gone without a coup like if you you look at the history of world empires uh you always have a general uh, deciding that he could do better than the emperor, and sure. you know, rewarding his troops with extra pay, and, and then and then and then the game is on. In American history, uh, that really doesn't happen. Uh, I I think the uh, that that sort of energy of the, the the civil authorities losing control over the the military power happens in police departments. Like I mean, Bill De, Bill De Blasio is a bum. No one likes him. He's he's a buffoon who has mismanaged everything in New York City in the past six months. Every, this is just sort of generally acknowledged. I think there's no arguing against it. But I do sympathize with his position to a certain extent in that he is stuck between a massive standing army and a people that hate him and a people that also hate that standing army. <laughs> yeah. Right? So you have, you, you have the Sergeant's Benevolent Association uh, – bagging on him for not allowing them to do cavalry charges. Uh, is that real? I hadn't heard that. Oh, yeah. No, so this has been a thing. So this has been a... So at, at first, at first in the protests, until very recently, the orders from de Blasio were that the cavalry cannot be sent out, that the mounted units of the NYPD cannot be sent out. Now they may be sent hey. out, but only to... Only on, like, inspection tours or something. I forget what the, I forget what the word is. And the... Uh, the Sergeant's Benevolent Association, which is run by this this crackpot Ed Mullins, has be, is berating uh, Bill De Blasio. He, had, he 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 wants them to he wants them to be able to run down the protesters, and uh, right and and the mayor's so it's the mayor's it's stuck. just but. It's just both hilarious and terrifying. I mean, I can't imagine the scenes of a genuine cavalry charge against a crowd of people. It's just, it's ludicrous. I mean, it's 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 very aesthetic. It's it's like Doctor Zhivago. It's it's, it's... <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I'll concede that. Uh, but it's just, I mean, I, I find it very strange. I you see them, 
you know, at the protests, you see mounted police officers. It's not really crossed my mind what their purpose would be. Uh, yeah, that's that's I, a lot. I mean, on, on one hand, it is kind of fantastic that there are these these uh, local militaries. I think we can I think we can admit that in a practical sense, the police are a military. Uh, yeah, that actually still have cavalry. No, that's true. That's true. And and without any known tactical purpose, I, I know the U.S. Army maintains uh, horses. I don't know for what, um, you know, but but, you know, it, they're out and about. They're deployed in the case of the police right now. No, I mean, horses are scary. I don't want I don't want to be I don't want a horse running at me, but uh... that's fair. But no, but there's this, there's, uh, there's the civil authorities are in a weird, in a weird jam because they, uh, I mean, this is a classic dynamic, right? The emperor is feuding with the Praetorian guard, right? Yeah. It happens all the time in, in, in ancient history. Uh, I don't know how to, I don't know how to manage it. I don't know how anyone, I, I mean, that's what, that's what I mean. I feel, I feel in this respect, while I don't respect him as a, I don't think he's done a good job of running the city. I have some sympathy for de Blasio's plight. I'm sure if he raised an army from among the people and challenged his other standing army with it, that's his path to legitimacy. Uh, sure. I... <laughs> yes, if if that's not serious. Well, I mean, people have been calling him all kinds of all kinds of communist names for a long time. Perhaps you know, Bill De Blasio discovers a little bit of a Maoist hidden within him. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but it's no, he. I, I, no one, no one knows. No one knows how to solve that problem. I don't know how. I don't know how, in the abstract, you can think about a solution to that problem, right? You... Well, at least not in the immediate term. I mean, clearly, the long-term strategy for public authorities, simply to reassert their authority, has to be something like police abolition. Um, you know, saying nothing. This appeals even, I think, to our reactionary friends. It has nothing to do with, um, you know, the justice of the claim. It's a pure reassertion of the local authority. Right. That in order to achieve that, you have to break the power of the police union. You have to break the power of the police chief. You have to break this independent political authority so that you can rule yourself. Right. I mean, I think everybody will agree with that if you articulate it that way. Yeah. I, I don't think it, it seems like no one has the vision to do that. No, I, I would agree with that. Have you have you looked closely into what they're doing in Minnesota? Minneapolis? No, no, I haven't. I, I I don't even know if there's much to look closely at yet, right? But they're no, I yeah, me either. My sense is that it's it's platitude at the moment. This is also something that this is not a unique. This is not this is not a problem that is just uh, uh, woven into modern life, right? Like there are. This kind of stuff doesn't happen overseas. Not everyone. Which kind of stuff? Uh, so, so riots and riot cops are universal, right? Uh, but the the reason the, the the events people are protesting in the U.S. right, you know, cops casually and with impunity killing black people, uh, and frankly, co- co- cops also casually and impunity and with impunity killing basically anyone anyone they want to, uh, right? Is doesn't happen abroad. That's true. And, and, you know, to some extent, I believe that to simply be, you know, a unique defect of our culture. I don't want to get off on some gun control rant because I don't actually believe in gun control. But it does seem that we are a more 
um, martial, individualistic, and warlike people than some of our, you know, comparator civilizations overseas. Our citizens are much better armed. Our police officers are much better armed. Um, you know, I don't actually know how our murder rates or violent crime rates compare. I wouldn't be surprised if they were a lot higher here as a result. Um, you know, it does seem that we foster that kind of mentality where um, if you are a police officer, you're going into a war zone. If you're a citizen and you're going to Walmart, you have to carry a gun because, you you know, something very bad could happen to you at any time. So, you know, that's that's got to be a driver here. No, it's probably it probably is. Right. And and. Yeah, maybe maybe that is all it boils down to. Right. There's also the I, I think there's also the there's an interesting dynamic where um, we are a much more advanced society in terms of the way that our internal colonialism is set up, right? We are a much more um, a much more carceral society than all of those comparisons that you brought up, right? We compare it to what is it North Korea in terms of our prison population. Um, you know, the fact that we have sustained racial underclasses in the United States for us to exploit that we have to dominate through force in a way that I, I understand that there are Polish immigrants in England and whatever it is elsewhere, right, and where some of these dynamics get replicated. But the scale of it in the United States is really, sure. I think, I think very different. And so insofar as we want to think about you know, the overtly white supremacist element of this police violence, the fact that we maintain very large black and brown populations for us to terrorize um, and exploit, clearly we're going to have more of that kind of behavior here relative to a more, um, you know, ethnically homogeneous society. No, I think that, I think there is there is something to that, right? The, the I in, in most cases, it's not historically true that the police were born as slave patrols, but that that, that, that argument that has some currency on the left uh, uh, does, I think, capture something real, right? That the that you know a major function of the police in society is is uh, keeping certain parts of of the overall country disciplined and well behaved and and uh, as it were locked down. Right. And I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest that that's, you know, restricted purely to some kind of racial analysis. You know, there's obviously a class element and those relate to one another. I don't want to be crude in either direction. Right. Um, it's clear that a poor white man has much less leeway in terms of his ability to commit drug offenses than a rich white man does. So when we, when we talk about the the uh, let's say the intersectional question, I don't know if you've been seeing some of the the. Uh... Uh, the, the the term that's come into use is the contrarian left, which I which I quite like. Some of the I would call them the fascist left. I've never liked them. I'm not saying you should like them, but the <laughs> the uh, the take that there is nothing whatsoever progressive or to be hoped for in these protests because they're endorsed by brands. Their entire everything they're articulating is Black Lives Matter. It's 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 about a, a, a perhaps a legitimate grievance, but a racial grievance, not a uh, not a proletarian grievance, uh, and have you know. Again, these these people don't matter any more than the fascist lawyers. There's this couple couple dozen of them online, but it's it's interesting, uh, and I, I I you know I find it kind of bracing to see that there can be a position of uh, supposed radicalism and challenge to our way of life that sees in 
what is, if not an uprising, at least a massive public and political disturbance, nothing progressive or worth welcoming whatsoever. So I so so I actually I think there's an interesting through line between both perspectives where uh, it's sort of a species of theory brain, right? Where, um, you know, if you consider, I won't speak ill of theory brain, but well, I won't either. I mean, I I know we both stand on that on uh, decisively on one of the sides of that question, but I do think that there is a danger in you know uh, ruminating on principle to the exclusion of concrete reality, right? I think if you're there is a valid theoretical point that if your grievances are solely expressed in identitarian and or racial terms, you can't actually foster a class consciousness and you can't actually engage as proletarians as such, right? Like that that's a very constrained, limited theoretical point. It doesn't necessarily engage with the question of the degree to which proletarianization is like racial identity is part of that process of creating an oppressed class, right? Um, but you know, I, I I would say that there there you know, but if you if you don't if you don't actually look at the protesters or the protests and you just think about Black Lives Matter abstractly, you could easily arrive at your contrarian left position. Sure, but but like you have brands signing on to Black Lives Matter, uh, and you know, frankly, I don't really care if Amazon thinks Black Lives Matter. Right. They're, they're no, putting, that, that's that's but, that's basically risible, right? I've seen that both from left and right. The, the idea that you know because corporations are voicing support for a particular political cause, it means that it's there's some kind of corporate conspiracy to advance it. But one thing that just I find it, it, it well, I find it impossible to deny, and so I'm sort of perplexed that that people deny it, is the the uh, the indigenous quality of all these protests and uprisings. Right? They're not they're not getting. Uh, dispatches from uh, from Amazon neither are they getting dispatches from you know Antifa's uh, central command right <laughs> right there's a uh, people it seems like people separately and you know it's, there's, there's of course there's national communication there's national media but it seems like people separately across the country are saying I need to get involved I need to be protesting and that's that's honestly really really uh, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and I mean, so there's a there's a cynical way to take that, which is that, um, you know, the coronavirus put a lot of people out of work. There's a little bit, you know, not nearly enough, but a little bit of, um, you know, financial aid to keep people afloat. Um, in a sense, you know, so so one of the cynical reads is that uh, people are just going out to protest because it's a block party because they've been in in their houses for so long because it, it's something to do and it looks like fun. Um, now I don't suppose getting tear gassed or shot with rubber bullets is a lot of fun but you know i i think that's there's a cynical way to read that the, the, i was thinking about this earlier today the way to invert that is the degree to which we're disciplined by capital through work and how quickly you know so many people have gone out in a movement for justice once the boot lifts off your neck just a little bit Right. I mean, we've only been it's only been a couple months here that people have had probably a little bit more leisure time, probably, um, you know, a little bit more uh, energy outside of their daily activities to start thinking about these things and then obviously engaging in them. Um, you know, so I, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, I, and, and it's not. I don't think it's just, as you say, it's not just a response a response to boredom. 
I have a weird perspective on this because I've been I've been just as busy as ever, but uh, you know, trying to do everything from home, which is incredibly awkward and stressful and difficult, frankly. I personally, I find it more taxing I know, I, than being I, able to go into the office. I yeah. hate it, but uh, massive amounts of people are out of work, right? And that uh, I don't think it's a bad thing that that's kind of radicalizing. No, no, and certainly, certainly, I, I think you know we don't really want to talk about the coronavirus too much, but the the inadequacy of the political response, I think everybody recognizes that, um, you know, from whatever perspective you take. Uh, that's got to be playing a part here where there's a frustration there that, you know, we did the lockdowns, we didn't make people whole, we maybe didn't do the lockdowns in the best way. Like, we don't, we still don't have a plan um, for the coronavirus. You know, I, I it, it would be crazy to say that that's not playing a part here. And, and to the earlier point of whether this is a limited, constrained, sort of Black Lives Matter only type of movement, you know, that's the best argument that it isn't, that it could be rolled up into a broader struggle for, um, a more general justice and a more um, generally well-ordered society. So the protests are how we go to a well-ordered society? Well, I mean, you know, my perspective is that it's hard to do worse. Uh, obviously, I understand that there's an evil you know. It's really hard to do worse than the American regime. Again, 3,000 civilian murders every single day, um, you know, some of the most horrifying moral dissolution, some of the most horrifying treatment of, you know, racial minorities and and the excluded in our society. We can go on and on. We have gone on and on. There's no need to indict, you know, the American regime again and again. We know this. Everybody knows this. Everybody who's a believing Christian knows this. Um, again, it's hard I don't for think me that's to believe tr- I don't think that that's true. By the way, that everyone who's a believing Christian knows this. Right. I think a lot of people a lot of people say it's just a few bad apples. Right. Like. Well, that's hardly tenable. I mean, we've been doing this for as long as America's existed, right? I mean, it, it's ridiculous. But if things that were untenable were not believed by many, politics would be very boring. That's true. No, I, I, I fully understand that. All, all I mean to say is that, you know, in my mind, it's very difficult to do worse. Obviously, I recognize that there is a better and worse in world affairs. There's a better and a worse in history. There are worse regimes in living memory than ours. That's indisputable. Um, if you're telling me that a movement founded on justice for black lives and if there's a broader concern justice for the american people in economic terms if that rolls up into an alternative to our ruling order it's hard to convince me that that's really going to be worse than what we've had you know barring the last 50 years the last 200 years and and i don't i don't think it will create i have no hope that anything we have no i don't either will create, be- i don't say i have no hope simpliciter but i i have i have no hope that this will create an alternative to our ruling order but there are there are reforms, there are improvements, there are, you know, uh, for, forgive me for saying the word, uh, policy changes that I would welcome and that I think would be both just and would have positive effects on the life of the people. So I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not despairing totally of, of anything changing. I mean... Uh, there are some very exciting potential outcomes. I mean, I don't think we're fully out of the woods there. We're in... We're <laughs> we're approaching the cool zone, right? So, you know, supposing that there's another big coronavirus surge. I mean, there's a lot of stuff so that can that, happen, right? This was this is the uh, I hate I hate the term the cool zone, but the the uh, there's kind of a nihilism in it that I that I I don't like. But the the um, you all remember in 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 sixteen, everyone remembers in in 2016 when a bunch of people on the right suddenly. 
suddenly filling themselves with the potential to be rehabilitated, imagining that Trump could be their vehicle to power, uh, began to feel like, well, now finally we're moving past liberalism. History has begun again. Was a slogan some of them was a slogan some of them liked. Right, we're yeah. we're now we're now in the let's say the, the fascist flavored cool zone, in which now in which now the state serves the people and can finally destroy the enemies of the people, or or could in for some of the the less fascist wonkier ones, now we can finally begin a a nationalist industrial policy. Right, it took it took different forms, some of them more and less malicious, but there was a sense among a lot of people on the right that that uh, political possibilities had just opened up. I felt the same way kind of abstractly about the coronavirus, because since it had come from nowhere and totally, you know, out of left field in terms of all our expectations, it uh, it opened up new possibilities. And now we see even more. I think what makes a lot of people on the right uncomfortable is that they had accustomed themselves since 2016 to thinking that they were in control, right? That there are all these new possibilities, but they're, they're their possibilities, uh, whereas now other things have, have opened up that they dislike. Right. Right. I mean, the... I, so I, I do not think there will be anywhere police abolition in America. Frankly, I don't even think that's a good idea. But the, Well, I mean, the police abolition is said in many ways. It's not clear to me that police abolition really means anything other than constituting the police in a very different way than we have them currently, right? You're always going to have what are effectively cops, even if you call them something different. To, that's, I, I agree with that, absolutely. And, and, and so I only say that because I think it's a bit of a you know silly – uh, uh, objection to just to in semantic terms say I, I don't like the idea of police abolition. No, but it's the same way of, of like state abolition, the, the withering away of the state. There's no actual withering away political authority in any kind of future Marxist, whatever utopia thing. Um, you know, it's just getting hung up on the words. I think you know there are sub there's substance there that people can hang on to. So police abolition can be can be said in many ways. That's what I'm saying. But until. This week, last week, until very recently, it was being said only in the verso loft, right? Right. Now it's now it's being written on posters that are going out in the streets that thousands of people are actually seeing. Now, and public authorities are making gestures in the direction. Yeah, and right? even in, in, I mean, the even if those gestures are merely uh, the tribute vice pays to virtue, right? Even if they're hypocritical, uh, that's still something that didn't happen before. Right. I think I, I think I'm much more sanguine than most people about the uh, uh, the value of of political hypocrisy. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't mind it. It's just that you have to. You can't get. Uh, there's a there's a pro wrestling phrase. You can't work yourself into a shoot, brother. Where the work is the fake fighting and a shoot is the real fighting, right? If you're if you're tactically aligned with a hypocritical leader that pays lip service to your virtue, um, you know, you have to make sure that you don't fall head over heels for that leader. Sure. Yeah. And frankly, one of the great virtues of the current movement that we're seeing in the streets is its effective leaderlessness, right? There isn't a. I mean, in, in Ferguson, there were Black Lives Matter protests as well, in which certain persons came to the fore presenting themselves as leaders and right. you know almost in all cases be clowned themselves <laughs> and in the other cases were killed in mysterious some of them died in mysterious circumstances uh others brought to you black lives matter by doritos right uh, right uh, and, and so it's a i think it was the gay pride doritos specifically i don't there was some, i don't know there is an anecdote here. I just don't quite remember it. Uh, maybe our maybe our listeners will. They uh, 
but that uh, the fact that it's leaderless means there's nothing there's nothing to be there's nothing to drag it down, right? It is just sort of a space of possibility we can read things into. Yeah, and I, I, that actually turns me off a little bit. I mean, I personally, you know, think that's the strongest criticism of the protests in the sense that, you know, I, I would very much like to see a more coordinated, um, you know, well, if I say that I'd like to see a more coordinated uprising that could be taken in certain directions that I might not want my public comments to imply, uh, I would like a more coordinated movement, perhaps, for justice uh, and equality. Uh, because I think, you know, if there if that doesn't happen, then it's pretty likely in my mind to end up not achieving its ends. It has to get there at some point in order to articulate demands, in order to, you know, ultimately you know take the leverage and apply it somewhere right and and what i what i think a lot of the what i think a lot of the the police have not understood or if they have understood they've just decided they don't need to care about it is that they right now have everything to gain by passivity and waiting right if yes if if this blows over and there are no rule changes no changes to the police unions no changes to uh qualified immunity and other legal doctrines that enable the police to, to, you know, to commit atrocities uh, and people just quiet down and, and stop being angry. That is total victory for the police. Correct. Yeah. That was always the right choice was to, was to do nothing. It was not even to militarize really the, the U S Capitol or, or to, you know, beat back protesters with tear gas and Lafayette square or whatever. Right. Um, it was always to, you could even tolerate a little bit of rioting if your aim were really to preserve you know, this unquestioned authority. So it's just a bit of a, a strategic blunder on their part. Yeah, we'll see what, uh, we'll see whether it, whether it impedes their long-term strategy. I just think there are things that it, it well, to be honest, we've seen this. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, Justin Amash, the libertarian, is a bit of a, uh, bit of a buffoon. Uh, his move against qualified immunity in Congress is pretty, uh, I think, a pretty creditworthy one. And that's actually the the best. If you wanted to argue with what I was saying earlier around the the movement or the protesters or the, the uprising or whatever requiring leadership to get things done, there's been a lot that people have come forward to try to do. Um, you know, in the absence of that, um, you know, understanding I think rightly that um, you know. Prudence in this moment, if you're a ruler, means doing everything in your power to correct the injustice. Because if you don't do that, we're going to be right back here again in three months, and six months, and eighteen months. And because this, well, I got things are going to keep going on and on and on. But for all, for all political pundits, and for all, and for a lot of political actors, the difference between three months and six months is everything now. No, that's and it, you can you can see that uh, I don't think about politics that way because I had completely forget, forgotten about the election, right? Uh, the, so you, I mean, you're you're thinking yes, prudence of the ruler is trying to trying to uh, promote the common good of the people, and that's that's wonderful. Yeah, uh. <laughs> yeah, sweet, cute, naive, right? Uh, do we want to touch on um, this this? I find it, frankly, insane. But this notion that uh, the protests are out to destroy the church—it's incredibly stupid, uh, unfathomably stupid, and and stupid in a way that shows its work. Uh, 
<laughs> so <laughs> the whole aim of the the whole aim of of the protest is to dominate public space, right? The whole aim of of tagging of tagging things is to show that you know our slogans are unavoidable. If you're at a public place, you'll see them. Uh, the whole aim, even of rioting, is to demonstrate that authority has broken down. Uh, whose streets are streets, as we like to say, and, and really nothing, uh, nothing shows possession so much as destruction, as frankly, from the other side, the police very well understand. Uh, but there has not been no reason to believe that uh, there is anything anti-clerical or anti-Catholic about these protests. Right. The thing that I keep thinking about over and over again that's hilarious is that black people in the United States are the most religious people in the United States. Yeah, but there's, there's like the the no. In frankly, even even those who are panicking and, and calling for the the suppression of the uh, of the protest with bullets and gas because some churches might have been damaged or at least uh, suffered cosmetic harm, right? Even those people do not believe that this is a uh, an orchestrated attempt to destroy the church's patrimony. Yeah, and let's be clear, like, I, I don't actually like it when a church of is tagged. Not. I don't like it when there's a fire in a church or anything like that. I don't even care to apologize for it. I just think it's risible that people believe that there's anything seriously anti-Catholic in, you know, the protest. <laughs> they don't believe right it. They now. don't believe it. What they do believe is that they found themselves a way out. They found a loophole, right? I, I w- would have to listen to the, I would have to listen to the, uh, the justice of these protesters' claims, uh, except that they tagged a church, and you know, consulting my my manual of integralism, I determined that no political movement that acts against the physical patrimony of the church in any way can ever be in any way legitimate. Therefore, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. It, it's it, it's it's a cop out. It's a, it's a it's an elaborate. Well, I mean, this is not an uncommon phenomenon, right? People come up with elaborate theories for why they get to ignore someone's claim to justice yeah i guess where i get hung up is the degree to which to it's intentional and simply disingenuous um as propaganda or to the degree to which people actually believe this because i i would find it very difficult to believe something oh like i this. would too but then again i'm a, i'm you know we're, we're both leftist heretics uh <laughs> the the it, it, it's it's a mixture of sincere belief and and disingenuousness, right? People who feel identified with the way things are, with the order of society, are happy to find any excuse they can to dismiss arguments about the injustice of that order. It, 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 and and so the 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 tenuousness of the argument and the psychological need to uh, to d- defend order fit together perfectly. Right. So I guess I guess what I'm hearing is that th- there's there's this interesting sort of opening up movement. If you think about, you know, taking the pro-life claim seriously, right, where you recognize that for 50 years we've been killing thousands of innocent children, you know, basically unrepentantly and without much modification or reform uh, again for 50 years. Right. W- when you dwell on that, you know, I think. There are some people that end up captured in a partisan ideology, right, that end up basically devotees of whatever political party is going to do the most good for the anti-abortion movement, which obviously is the Republican Party. But then I think there's another movement where you dwell on that injustice and that allows you to sort of 
open your mind to other kinds of injustice in society. Because if we're capable of that grave of an evil, I, you know, it's probably unlikely that we're wholly virtuous in other domains. So, so I guess what I'm hearing is that, you know, there's that first movement that we need to guard against. And this second sort of, you know, dwelling on one injustice that's near to us and that we understand and allowing that to open up our, our, our hearts to sorts of other, other kinds of pain, other kinds of injustice. That's what we really need to encourage in order to, you know, get to the people that I think uh, really lamentably have gotten caught in this idea that racial justice is inherently anti-clerical. Well, it gets back to the idea that, that, that you know, the, the theme of a few bad apples, right? What is it? it what is wrong with America? Is it a few bad apples, right? Is America fundamentally a nation of good Christian men that just because of some unfortunate judicial decisions has been, you know, enabling abortion, striking at the roots of family life, and, you know, encouraging drag queen story hour, but that once these, uh, once these minor uh, aberrations are removed, the, the, the true, authentic Christian uh, moral, virtuous, whatever word you want to use, right? The true heart of America will be reasserted and will, sh- and will shine through once we've, uh, uh, you know, once we've polished the the uh, the rust off it. Right. A lot and, of people believe of that. that, I, that... It's, it's it's incredibly reassuring to believe. I wish I could. No, I well, I don't dispute that. I guess I just thought that one of the principal movements against the old fusionism was to open up our. Our, our minds to the fact that there's nothing aberrant about the disorder and chaos and violence of our of our ruling order, right? That this has been part and parcel of the American experiment since the beginning, right? I mean, I, I, I think so, but the but that is a that is a uh, painful and uh, disheartening thing to realize, right? I, I it's it's one thing to say like I am one of the good people, basically good. Uh, maybe a little bit corrupted by some some circumstances, but once I fix that, my essential goodness will shine through, right? To say that to say on the other hand that the patrimony that we have is an, an unworthy one, one acquired by theft and and and, uh, and plunder. That's a difficult. That's a hard. That's a hard thing to realize, and I think a lot of uh, uh, a, a lot of people will find ways not to engage with that. Yeah, especially given the historical, um, you know, skepticism of Catholics, especially from within the American project, right? If you think about no, that's that's not know, it. That's that totally we... that that is totally disactivated. What do you mean? So, Catholics were <laughs> reviled in many stages in American history, right? The the horror that the toleration of Catholics that was extended to Quebec might be brought to the colonies was one of the reasons why. The, the you know the uprisings that led to the revolution began, absolutely true. Uh, Catholics were viewed as weird foreign agents for a long time in American history, but that is no longer active in any sense. No, but that's no longer active in any sense because we bent the knee, and we reconciled ourselves to the American experiment and rendered ourselves neutral and or positive toward it. Right? Um, if you think about the way that John F. Kennedy. You know, I think he went to the Southern Baptists and told them effectively, I'm not going to listen to the Pope. I'm not going to listen to the church. I'm going to be a good American. Effectively, that's every American that's every American Catholic that's ever attained any significant degree of political power has made that same statement, that same compromise, that same. Um, yeah, so we're going to have a handshake meme with uh, JFK and Buckley. 
Right. And, and so and so that's my point is, is not to dispute that, you know, uh, whether there's still significant anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States. I think where there is, it tends to be expressed as um, hostility toward, um, you know, sort of some traditional moral claims and some degree of excess treatment as far as, um, you know, scandals of the church are concerned. Um, you know, that that would be it. Um and that's that's disputable. That's arguable. Um, but but b- the reason that it no longer exists is that we are no longer a threat, right? That we reconciled ourselves to America, for better or worse, and and I think for the worse. No, it's true. All the great. Uh, if, if you go to any event where people are praising the American founders and and singing, you know, basically uh, continuing the whole Whig story, you'll find Catholics in there. That was the old fusionism. Uh, And that's what's so disappointing about the new one is that they've lost that insight, right? They've been happy to make that same compromise once again. And it's just, we can't tolerate that. We can't can't live that. If we're getting on the subject of the new fusionism, I think it is a very different one. Because the the old fusionism was a backwards and, and let's say, intellectually sterile one. It just said, we can take take the American founding fathers, graft a little bit of St. Thomas and Leo XIII onto them, and call this a, a Catholic way of being American, and say this is no mere marriage of convenience. We're going to we're going to we can work together, and there's no there's no conflict. I think the new fusionists aren't exactly doing that, right? They're saying they're, they're saying effectively that that whatever we have in in Trump or Brexit or whatever event they think is is the important one is a rupture that creates something new, and Catholics must fuse, so to speak, with with that. But it is something. It is something new. It's not just backwards looking. And so they, there is a kind of uh, revolutionary excitement uh, that they can they can muster when they speak of their disdain for the uh, the way things have been done and the way things have been thought of. But but again, it, it's always it, there. Still is the principle, though, as you say, which is that Catholics are meant to are meant you know, meant to submit to this, or at least to cooperate and wait their turn uh, uh, for for when they'll be heard after the after the final victory. And I guess the, the the fundamental problem that I have with this is that it, when you think about the old fusionism, it was libertarians, free marketeers, it was religious traditionalists, it was anti-communists, and it was white supremacists, right? And in these moments of rupture that you're describing, all that's happening is that the libertarians are being marginalized slightly in order to amplify the white supremacists a little bit more, right? So I just have a really hard time seeing anything new to say nothing of seeing anything illiberal in these, you know, in Trump or in Brexit or in Hungary and Poland and these, these, whatever we want to, you know, take as our moment of departure. Uh, Yeah. Yes. And so does illiberalism mean anything more than owning the libs? Right. I think, I think some of them do have a vision uh, for sort of, you know, reforging the nation. Uh, and it's not simply white. It's not simply white supremacy, though they're happy to they're happy to make common cause with the white supremacists when 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 appropriate. Uh, but I don't know. I don't think I, I don't think I've been able to to get the contours of exactly what it is. But it's an no. It's, I mean, again, I, I'm thinking, and, and again, in my ivory tower, I'm thinking only about the intellectual activities of twenty nerds, uh, twenty nerds who twenty nerds who believe the great motion of history to be their vindication and to some extent their uh, uh, their their golem that's answerable to them. Uh, right. That that's obviously horseshit. But the the uh, 
but there is something more there than just a just a resurgence of, of white supremacy. There is a there is what the old fusionists never had, which is an alternative political vision. I just don't feel I don't trust them to be honest about it, and I don't feel like I've quite been able to get to the bottom of what it is. No, and it doesn't help that insofar as we, you know, they clearly make a lot of fascist noises, right? I think that's indisputable. Um, The degree to which to their, you know, committed theoretical fascists, let's bracket that question. Um, Rather, I think where I get stuck is that insofar as those are the noises they're making, uh, fascism is just a defensive crouch for the liberal order so that it can reassert its, its authority in the face of a little bit of unrest, right? Um, there's nothing genuinely, you know, illiberal about it in terms of the contours of power. Now, you could say it's procedurally illiberal. It's It doesn't adhere necessarily to uh, liberal norms in terms of, like, freedom of speech or whatever. But it's a, it's a fundamentally uh, – it's a product of liberalism designed to reassert the liberal order. And so that's where I get stuck in seeing something genuinely new here. Or something genuinely different. Well, so we're not going to see an actual fascism. The conditions aren't right, and that's what and and, and that's what uh, the would be fascists don't get. Right? It, they're the liberal order is willing to accommodate fascists and and partner with them and give them power as part of a, a bargain, or by which they hope the fascists will crush the left on their behalf. So they'll make they'll make concessions. That are not required by liberalism to, you know, to to racist uh, political programs or to or to you know weird nationalist symbolisms. They'll make these concessions because they see it as a price worth paying for protection. Sort of like when public authorities delegate uh, the sword, as it were, completely unaccountably to the police to crush regular Americans in the streets. <laughs> So I I only observe that to say that you're saying that there's that there's no fascist moment. I mean I think the dynamic you just described is hard to hard to deny in the case of what we see lived day to day in terms of our carceral state and in terms of the way that you know people of color are treated in America. Sure, and if and if you want and if you want to say that America's carceral state is already is already fascist, I'm I'm not prepared to disagree with that. But there's a sense in which that's certainly true. But it is not the fascism for which some of our opponents long no that's true. Uh, and i just think i just think they're wrong uh capital doesn't need uh doesn't need brown shirts to keep itself safe these days right there, there, there's a yeah. there's a uh the the sense that the, the because of the weakness of the left uh y- you don't need fascism yeah, that's probably true. And and because one one of the things you you'll note about all these people who imagine that you know the, in the brutal crushing of this current uh, current unrest there could be the beginnings of a of, of sort of a, a new dawn of fascism, the birth of a nation, uh, they are almost always scrupulously ignorant of economics and dismissive of all arguments from political economy. Right. And, and so it, this is just a yeah. huge the this is a huge in the historical genesis of fascism. This is a huge blind spot for them. So they will see in certain legal or formal debates and certain cultural movements that we may have had in the 20th century. They want to they want to see the conditions for fascism as entirely rooted in those. And they see some 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 things about our time that may rhyme with those situations. Whereas what they miss is that in the in in a sense, the the truest story of our time, the, the material story is totally unlike that. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's wrong to say that, um, you know, we're in a sort of, you know, I think of the part uh, in The Great Transformation where he's discussing the late 19th century as sort of a departure from uh, a globalist moment toward a nationalist moment and a first step on the way to the First World War and the subsequent sort of fascist, overt fascist defense um, of capital. I do think that we're in the early stages of that process. It's not clear to me how quickly we're moving. Um, it's possible that coronavirus and these uprisings might um, accelerate the timeline. I, I do. I don't think it's wrong to see it on the horizon, but I don't think it's anytime soon. I just don't see the. Uh, if if fascism is fundamentally reactive to to threats from the left, what is there to react to? Well, plainly, you know, millions of people in the street. But that's the thing, and this is where I think the contrarian leftists have a point. These people are not in the are not in this. They're in the streets, and they should be in the streets. And their cause is just, but their cause is not workers of the world unite. Their cause is don't shoot. No, and it's a ju- and it's a just cause. It should be granted, and a and a decent state would acknowledge the justice of that that cause and rein in the police and punish those who have done wrong. But it is not a. It is there's nothing essentially leftist about this movement right but i can understand i can understand the horror right if that's your if that's your fundamental concern is the power of the left i could understand a horror at what we're seeing because it's clear that if these protesters keep going if they uh develop a bit more of a broad consciousness against injustice generally then they could constitute a very significant threat to the dominion of capital uh from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> That's the other funny thing about, um, you know, you, you say something about uh, complete ignorance of political economy. That it seems as though the people making fascist noises genuinely believe that uh, legitimate public authority as such is going to, much less can, seriously strike against capital, um, you know, basically immediately at the will of the president this is the pro- well, this is why it's uh, the problem is that these people tend to be tend to be lawyers or like political journalists who are heavily under the influence of lawyers they they don't they can't see those elements of the constitution of the americas that are not in the written law right you were you were saying earlier and rightly so that cops are a huge part of the regime by which we're ruled that's never really accounted for in in our explicit legal descriptions of things right summary orders from cops rooted in no statute are expected to be obeyed Uh, that's a huge part of our constitution at the same time summary orders from bosses backed up with real punishment uh in the sense of you know losing losing wages are a huge part of how we're governed a huge part of our constitution uh, which doesn't appear for them at all, right? The 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 legal theorists can understand can understand the policeman as an agent of the executive. He has an expanded enough idea of the executive, but to understand the boss as an ins- as an instrument, not just not even of of a shareholder, but of the political regime under which we live, I don't think that I don't think that occurs to them. And that's funny because when I've thought about genuine rallyment to the American state, I've always thought about trying to make Warren Buffett and Bill Gates Catholic and seriously Catholic, right? That that would be where I would start. I would not start with the president of the United States or the speaker of the house or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
Not that I think that that's a practical strategy at all. I just think that it, it speaks to a different perspective on on how rule actually works. Oh no! If we had if we had tremendously wealthy, tremendously pious people in America, there could be a, a lot of they would make a huge difference. I just don't know how. It, it it does seem that in order to become not not prosperous but like but like phenomenally wealthy to the point where like your donations can move society you probably have to be you probably have to do some things that are pretty bad or exploitative and you also yeah. probably end up with such an exalted idea of yourself and your own wisdom that you're not likely to listen to the the priest that comes to you and asks you to to start changing the way society works, even though you have the power to do it. If the priest were to dare, right? Yeah. Well, that's why the fusionists, that's why the fusionists, uh, the fusionists and their, and their clerics had such good luck, right? If I'm, if I'm coming to you and saying big business is the American way, your success as an entrepreneur, as John Paul II says, in my expurgated version of his writings uh, is an example of the human spirit and freedom. And this is how we defeated the communists in the name of Christ. You're like, well, yes, I do think when I, you know, when my rate of profit grows up that I'm a warrior in, in the cause of Christ. And thank you for telling me so. Right? It's very easy when you come with that kind of fusionist message to win over the rich. If you come to the rich and say, you know, woe to you who are rich, right? The, the clothes in your closet are the clothes that you have stolen from the poor. Certainly there's this, there is this vocabulary in the Christian tradition. Yeah. If you come to them with that, you will get a, in most cases, you get a pretty cold hearing. Right. Right. And I think that's it. that's one of the most fundamental insights that, that we need to reckon with is that the way that we're ruled, their structures are intended to corrupt people by the time they're able to rule, right? You're, you're, there's no neutral ascent to leadership. The path to leadership in America, at least, is over the bodies of whoever you exploited and or killed to get there, right? And so by the time you're the billionaire or you're the president or you're whatever kind of important person in the country, there's, there's outside of a miraculous work of, of conversion through the grace of God, you know, you're basically, you know, going to end up defending those same injustices and those same exploitative behaviors that got you there. Uh, at the, at the recommendation of a, uh, of an Australian Dominican of, of both of our acquaintance. I've been reading some Peter Brown lately. And one of the phenomena that he keeps returning to is how a huge, uh, a huge uh, source of power and influence in the early church were rich widows, right? Who had come into a lot, who had come into a lot of money and were willing to throw it into religious purposes and to basically back their favorite bishops and preachers and theologians, and sometimes actually stir up a lot of trouble in the church. Uh, but out of reasons of the purest piety, right? These were like, these were people who were ascetic, who were incredibly rich, who hadn't built that wealth themselves, but had full control of it, and so did actually, in many cases, just just you know put it to ecclesiastical purposes. Uh, I'm not sure if that's something we can have in an age of uh, of capital management, right? Right. If the you say someone did inherit, say you know someone who had a true conversion of heart had uh, you know inherited. The fortune of one of our one of our uh, you know nihilist tech barons. Uh, how are they going to get through the accountants? How are they going to get through the financial advisors? I don't know. I'm just I, I'm not optimistic that 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 path of integration 
uh, is one that is open to us. I'm smiling blankly because I know very little actually about how great wealth is managed. So I don't well, know my, what those obstacles are like. My my experience isn't isn't personal. No, of course. No, I just don't know. But uh, but uh, and look, a forceful enough heir could override all the trusts in the end. Sure. So where do we go? Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to go back into it. It's, if we find ourselves in an intellectual dead end and end up back thinking that we need to cultivate our cultivate our own garden and no longer no longer identify the continuity of moral civilization with the with the uh, maintenance of the imperium or whatever it is. Uh, if we're going down that line, it, it seems inappropriate to be talking that way when there's an actual movement in the streets. Right. I mean, so, so I guess then concretely, you really do have two options, right? Is that that's what you're saying? Is that either you can stand behind the cops and uh, the military and the president and imagine that those who are doing violence will one day reconcile themselves to Jesus Christ, or you can, you know, throw in your lot with protesters who, granted, are not acting explicitly in the name of Christ. But nevertheless, oppressing the cause of justice—that that there's not another way. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe a top-down, and and I, I think there probably isn't another way. I don't know if there's one. And I, since I don't believe a top-down conversion of society is possible, right? I have I have very little faith in the idea that if we just make ourselves loyal enough uh, supporters of the current regime, eventually they'll come to respect us and convert and. You know, we'll we'll have a, uh, a a new age of Constantinianism, right? Which is which is ambiguous, right? I mean, I I, I haven't been able to figure out exactly. Uh, you know, you can't force people to become Catholic through the laws, through the civil laws. Uh, you can encourage the church, and you can certainly not harm its liberties. But that's I I don't. It's it's not contrary to integralism or anything like that to say that. The Second Vatican Council very clearly said that you can't force people to convert. So, the, the so, second, so, it, but this isn't just the Second Vatican Council that said that, right? That no, I understand the, the canon law of the Church going back as far as it goes back says that. Right. So, so, so that's that's where I fundamentally get stuck with this top-down, real uh, conversion of society question. Is yeah, I understand that there's a symbolic power in having the president be overtly Catholic or whatever, right? Um, you can't force people to do this, so it's so it's it, it's not clear to me how you're going to do that, especially when your exercise of authority in normal circumstances is aligned with injustice and oppression, right? If that's your strategy, you're probably not going to win souls to Christ. Well, and the, and the conversion of the Roman Empire in the first place did not prim, did not it didn't hurt that the institutions, the, the emperor himself, and many of the institutions of the empire became converted. Uh, but it is certainly noteworthy that subsequent uh, like that the the apostasy of Julian did not actually erase Christianity right there was a popular basis of support I, I'm speaking totally humanly now right I mean the the there is a popular basis of support that even if the church were not divinely ordained and immune to destruction right even if that weren't the case no one merely from the top down uh, controlling the apparatus of the state at that time could have erased Christianity. Right. 
but in, in, in reverse, Christi- Christianity, when it was in control of the state, could barely erase the heresies. But there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no. Uh, I don't think there is a way to have a Christian society without massive bottom-up conversions, and 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 you know, genuine uh, conversions of heart. No, I think that's right, and I think that's reassuring, right? Because it puts it puts the agency, you know, one of the things that's that's problematic about this sort of top-down view is that fundamentally we don't have control, right? If all we're waiting for is the right emperor, you know, we just, we're just waiting for the right emperor. Maybe we can pray for that, but there's nothing really that we can do to alter things until that uh, executive, you know, enters into his own domain, right? Whereas on the other hand, there's very concretely things that we can do in our daily lives to, you know, make that society possible, even if it's not, uh, you know, something that's terribly likely in the short term. Yeah. And I don't think that's just gardening, right? Like converting souls is is not, you know, it's not a retreat from society. It's not anti-political. It's nothing like that. Now, now where political things are concerned, I think in this particular moment, I, I think we're agreed that there's not really anything threatening to the status quo except where that status quo defends police brutality right and and maybe maybe white supremacy right as a, as a stretch goal for the protest that it could do serious damage to those structures of racism right in our society um there's nothing anti-american about them there's nothing anti our constitution there's nothing against um formal political authority it's a movement of reform from within the united states designed to support the united states and make the united states a little bit better of a place from that perspective, because I don't see it as anarchy, because I don't see it as genuinely revolutionary, I think it's a slam dunk where we need to align ourselves. Because I think, you know, there's on the one hand authority dedicated to injustice and the perpetuation of injustice against a claim of justice. And I don't think there's really a debate as to where Christians should stand when those are the battle lines. Yeah, when I, when I talk about uh, quietism or cultivating one's garden, I, I don't mean in opposition to politics or engagement with the community. I just mean a the the understanding that what we have to do in the first place is not uh, is not rule, right? Right. right. Or, or or if we are exercising rule in some sort of participation in politics, uh, we do it among ourselves. Yeah. So we should probably wrap up. I mean, we've gone for about uh, an hour and a half now. It's fine by me. I think we have some good content. Okay. Do we want to have a, have any closing words? No, I don't know. I don't know what the answer. I don't. I think we have a good conclusion, right? <laughs> no, I, but in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in a serious sense, I think there's there's so many things in motion now that uh, we can be we many things we know we don't know and things we could be wrong about that it's hard uh, it's hard for me to say how uh, you know it, it, finally what our response should be. Right. In, in a way, there's other people who have uh, have an easier time of it, right? Those who can say that the obvious answer here is crush the protests with tanks, right? And reassert reassert sovereignty and, uh, and and renew politics that way. Or those who say what we need is immediate proletarian revolution. Merely reforming the police is is just just window dressing, right? Those 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 extremes don't really work, I think. At least I find them totally, uh, totally unattractive uh, and unconvincing. So I don't know what to think of what's going on. Right? It, it is genuinely a situation of, of chaos. And if you or I, or maybe 
mean, I think I think we both do. If we find that uh, in some way reassuring because it opens new possibilities, it also doesn't mean uh, it also means we don't know what to do. No, I mean, I I I don't find it as chaotic as most, um, quite honestly, because again, I I see it as nothing more than you know a very dedicated but um, purely internal. Uh, claim for justice in, in particular in general cases, right? Um, there's nothing, there's no questioning of, of the ruling authority except insofar as that ruling authority is ordered to bad things. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. Obviously, it could spill out into bigger things um, as more of the uncertain things happen. Um, so I'm less, I'm less, in, I, I have less of an ambiguous response, I guess, and less anxiety around, um, you know, what do we do? Um, because I think it's pretty clear cut because I don't actually think this is that big of a deal. Um, you know, if there were things that, if this did spin out into bigger things, I mean, I'm not, it's not a secret. I, I don't believe that we can achieve our goals as Christians in our political life through reform of the American state. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm very clear about that. Um, how you get there practically, um, obviously that's a, that's open for a lot of discussion and debate. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'll be very surprised to see um, a genuinely Christian polity arise um, from within the structures of the United States of America because all, they all militate against it. No, I think, I, think that's something, I think that's something most people used to know because the arguments for it <laughs> – no, the, and the arguments for it have in no way gone away. Uh, I think – I mean, again, look, a lot of the – a lot. This, it keeps coming back as a theme in this conversation that a lot of the ways people get things wrong is by giving into wishful thinking, right? Yeah. Uh, the uh, it it would be nice if to be, it would be nice if a reconversion of society and an establishment of the church and her proper dignity could be accomplished through the instruments of rule in America and relatively straightforwardly. Right. Cause I think yeah. when people imagine this, they imagine it to be a matter of, you know, a couple of years, right. That, that we just need to get the justices. We give them the cases, they make the decisions, the president signs a few executive orders and boom, we're now again, Christendom, right. That's, it, I think that's what we imagine. It would be nice to believe that. And so I can understand why people believe that. I just, again, and we, before Trump was elected, before there was any talk of integralism, I mean, we, we had already, uh, and many others, had already sort of thought through why uh, why the American regime, which is effectively, say, the empire of the world at present, yeah. is, not, is not Christian and is perhaps not a, a, a not valid matter for baptism. Right. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that has changed. Yep. Well... We pray for the deliverance of God. So that's it. Thank you for listening. Once again, I'm GoOat at Go underscore Oat, and he was Kev the Big Dog at Kev underscore JG. This was the GoOat and the Big Dog show. I don't know when or if we'll have the opportunity to do this again. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did enjoy it, let us know if you'd like to hear more and ideas for what else we should talk about. I think one of the things we struggle with is, is as, as we're not podcasters, we don't totally know we, we, what we should be doing with this sort of thing. So um, reach out. Let us know what you thought. Um, stay safe. Be well. And uh, we're praying for all of you. Cheers.